could just keep going on that one. Hey, before we get into the message this morning, uh, we're going to start today and Lord willing going forward several Sundays have testimonies regarding the Gideon Testaments that were handed out. We all took some two or three weeks ago and we just want to report a little bit of the ways God's given opportunity to pass those out and what that's looked like. And so Mr. Jim Lord's going to start us off on that this morning, Jim. hasn't happened yet. You know, that song we just sang is really awesome, isn't it? Uh, you have to ask ourselves, you know, how did we end up here? Did we uh, find ourselves churched all of our life and through a period of osmosis or a process of osmosis become believers? You know, for me, I was uh, churched, but um, kind of a lot like being a fellow crawling into a chicken cage and turning into a chicken. It didn't happen. I knew a few verses, but uh, I didn't really have a relationship with Christ. Ah, thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, I have to confess that I did life on my terms for a long time. I was an adult. Some people say I'm not an adult yet, but I was an adult when I came to a saving Christ, a saving relationship with the Lord. And I found recently that I've really been concerned about, am I doing the job of witnessing that I should? And the answer is a, an emphatic no. You know, what, what do I need to do that? Well, I need to be open to the Holy Spirit's prompting. And I'm becoming more open to the Holy Spirit's prompting. But I needed a crutch, and that little New Testament seemed to be the crutch that I needed recently. Oh, I'd shared my testimony with some people, but not in a very consistent manner. And you know, if we were doing our job of sharing our testimony, it doesn't have to be eloquent. We don't have to know a lot of scripture. We have to have a story, right? How did we come to a faith in Christ? If we were doing that, can you imagine what society would be like today? It would be a lot different, wouldn't it? Churches would be full and the bars would be empty probably. So that little testament I was able to share with a couple of people I would have never had the fortitude to share with this last week, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know, whenever. Um, Interestingly enough, when I shared, I guess they were closet Christians too. He said, well, I'm attending such and such a church. You know, so are we closet Christians? Nobody knows? Second one I shared with was a deacon in a church, and I kind of figured he was probably church, but I didn't really know. And when I shared about the Gideons coming, and I began to hand this to him and talking about it, he said, well, you know, the church that I'm in, we're, we're kind of the chosen frozen. I figure all the rest of you probably know who those are, but he, I think, is going to take that idea of the Gideon to the Board of Elders, which he serves on, and maybe they'll implement that too. But what I want to do this morning is not convict you, but to encourage you just to go and tell your story. How did you come to a faith in Christ? Nobody can refute that. It's your story. So, Take your New Testament. I'm going to see if I can find a few more. I still need a crutch. And uh, thank you for allowing me to share this morning. And let me encourage you to do the same this week forward. Thank you.
I would say Jim is in our home group, and having met and chatted with Jim, I, I would tell you, though, that he is somebody who conscientiously looks for opportunities already, and I know that's true for many of us here as well. So the Testaments are a great way of maybe helping those who are already doing it, given a new tool, and for those who haven't been, uh, to look for those opportunities instead. Let me pray, and we'll get into the message. Lord, we we know that uh, your call is to life, that you're the God of life, that Christ is here to give us life and give it abundantly, overflowingly. We pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, that those who already know you experience a bit more of Christ in life. And Lord, for anyone who isn't, uh, that they're finding uh, the reason and the cause to celebrate in your son because in him is not only forgiveness of sin but joy and pleasure life forevermore pray that you'd bring them to yourself in jesus name amen it is thanksgiving weekend and we're a little skinny this morning which is predictable there's lots of people on the road coming and going uh, the message this morning will be a little different than i usually would do uh, it's going to be a little bit of a history lesson on the front end so if you like history, that's good. If you don't, uh, prop your eyes open, do something with your ears. It's worth hearing. And then we'll get into the text, Psalm 50. After that, we'll focus on the issue of Thanksgiving. It's a great time to do so. That's a great topic and a great theme anytime, but on Thanksgiving weekend, uh, more so appropriately. Uh, most of us grew up probably with images of the pilgrims in that first Thanksgiving here on the states, this side of the Atlantic in 1621, they and the Native Americans had really helped them survive and thrive. We tend to forget, you remember that first Thanksgiving was notable for them because this was the survivors that were celebrating Thanksgiving. If you remember the year before, there were only half the pilgrims at, facing that second winter that were there the winter before. Half of them had died, over 50 died. So it was the survivors who had seen God's blessing and plenty in crops and reaping and preparation for the harsh winter in New England that was coming. It was that first Thanksgiving of the survivors, which is notable, we tend to forget. Uh, not long after that first Thanksgiving, and this is not on your study sheet, but I read this this week and I wanted to include it. Uh, not long after, in 1637, back in Europe, in the town of Eilenburg, Saxony, that's in modern-day Germany, southwest of Berlin, Lutheran pastor Martin Rinkhart wrote the hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. I don't know how many of you grew up hearing that. It's got a lovely melody, and it's a lovely hymn. The first verse goes this way. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices, who wondrous things has done, in whom this world rejoices who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Now, if you know the hymn, it's, love, it's a lovely sentiment, and, and we're giving thanks to God, and the tune is lovely. But if you don't know the setting in which it was written, you really lose the value. Al Mohler, in his Thanksgiving Day piece in World Magazine, talked about this pastor and this song, and this is what you need to know about the milieu in which the song was written. This was in the midst of the 30-year war that was ravaging Europe. So up to 8 million people, is the estimate, died because of the 30 years war. 
Central Europe and Eastern Europe today. That was going on in his backyard and his neighbors there in modern-day Germany. <clears throat> the other thing was this. The refugees of war that he welcomed into Eilenburg, into his town, they brought the plague with them. So he became the last surviving Protestant pastor in the town. He was the survivor. He performed up to 50 funerals, not a month and not a week, but a day. He oversaw over 4,000 funerals, including his wife's. And it's in that setting that he wrote, now thank we all our God. That's profound. It wasn't in a time of celebration. It wasn't the pilgrims facing a winter they could survive because of plenty. It was in the midst of death and deprivation. In fact, it was said that the population of Germany was cut in half between the war and the plague. And it was in the midst. Can you imagine? If you just saw this setting and one out of every two people was gone in a moment, and this was over a short period of time, that's the setting in which he wrote this song of thanksgiving. Fast forward back to American history, 1777, the colonies, these United States, were in the beginning years of the War of Independence, and the American forces had a victory over the British at Saratoga, and to commemorate that, the Continental Congress called for a National Day of Thanksgiving. Now listen to the wording in this. It's therefore recommended to the legislative or executive powers of these United States to set apart Thursday, the 18th day of December next, for solemn thanksgiving and praise. Solemn thanksgiving and praise. That at one time, with one voice, the good people may express the grateful feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor. And that, together with their sincere acknowledgments and offerings, they may join the penitent confession of their manifold sins, whereby they had forfeited every favor. And their humble and earnest supplication that it may please God, and listen to this, through the merits of Jesus Christ, mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance, that it may please him graciously to afford his blessings on the governments of these states respectively and prosper the public council of the whole. So this is in the midst of the war, the war of independence. They don't know where things are going. There's a victory in the moment, but they don't know where this thing is heading ultimately. And the language and the themes there are thanksgiving and praise, confession of sin, and petition to God for all things going forward. The first national Thanksgiving Day proclamation by a president was by George Washington, not much longer, 1789. So the first president, in his first year in office, made the first presidential proclamation of Thanksgiving. In part, he said this, It's the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. It's the duty to acknowledge God in all things to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. I'm reading these, of course, in part. I've edited these down for time's sake. 
He continued, Now therefore do I recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence, which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war, and for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty, which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, he signed off the third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1789. I'd be quick to point out, if you talk about the founders, many people are aware uh, many of the founders were not Christians, um, the, the claim of deism is put in there. A theistic rationalist is a phrase that, that I've read about by one author, which I appreciate. And if you read some of the founders in their own words, they did not believe in the incarnation that Jesus was divine. They did not believe in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. They did not believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, which makes it a little bit all the more remarkable that they still said, we know there's a God and we're not it. And we still owe that God something. In the, the former, the, the uh, Continental Congress specifically pointed out the merits of Jesus Christ. They said, we're recognizing our own sin, our loss of favor before God for our own sins. It's on the merits of Jesus Christ. But even if you're thinking of some of the founders not as evangelical Christians as we would be today, they still acknowledge that giving God thanks, confessing our faults, petitioning him for life, was still the right thing to do. If you go forward from there, 70 years later in 1863, very different. You know, Washington, you come out of the war. It's, there's still a lot of chaos politically. Um, the Bill of, Bill of Rights and the Constitution, were still, the Constitution was settled, Bill of Rights, I think, was still in flux a little bit. But there was general prosperity. In 1863, the times were very different. Abraham Lincoln was president. We were in the midst of a great civil war. He called it, in his words, unequaled in magnitude and severity. Remember, it would be over 600,000 people would die in the American Civil War. It's greater than any other combat the United States has ever seen. And remarkably, and by the way, you guys can read these online. You can do your own search, and they're all available in their entirety but when you read Lincoln's, it's remarkable because when he begins his piece on calling the nation to a day of thanksgiving, you'd never know that the country was in the midst of a war because he begins by articulating the fact that crops are being planted and reaped and industry is thriving and all this stuff is going on, not in the theaters of war, of course, but he is citing God's grace on the country in all the ways that it was otherwise occurring. And then he says this, related to the largesse of God in his common grace, he said, no, no human counsel has devised, nor has any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy." It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged 
as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea, sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise. There's that theme again. To our beneficent Father who dwells in the heavens, and I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him, the thanksgiving he deserves for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience. When's the last time you heard a president say we need to confess, confess the sins of our nation, our national perverseness, our, our wickedness, our evil? That's what Lincoln called the country to during Thanksgiving. <clears throat> Excuse me. Commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore. So there's thanksgiving, there's confession, and there's petition in all of these. Uh, sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. And he signed off this third day of October in the year of our Lord, again giving credit to God, 1,863. So Thanksgiving weekend, you know what happens to a lot of holidays, right? Uh, Christmas... Uh, Christmas had been historically within the church that time when you specifically focused on the incarnation. And, you know, if you see the culture today, what's Christmas? It's we're buying, we're shopping, we're eating, we're vacationing. Thanksgiving can get lost too. So it's a time we get together, we eat a lot, stuff our face, and maybe forget that the history and the theme behind all that was always, it was the acknowledgement of God. It was giving God his due in thanksgiving, in confession, and petition. That's a historical marker, that's been a norm in the country that we've grown up in. It's not the norm any longer, but when we look back, we have so much to be thankful for as those who've grown up in a country in which that was normal. That's part of our heritage nationally. I want to switch from there to a psalm, Psalm 50. Open your Bibles if you have those now. Psalm 50, I'm going to read from the ESV here in just a second. It's page 473 if you use a pew Bible. But that theme of thanksgiving, confession, and petition is rife throughout Psalm 50. This is a psalm of Asaph. He was a Levite during King David's day. He oversaw worship in the tabernacle. There are 12 psalms that bear his name. This is one and the others are in order, Psalm 73 through 83. Guys, we're going to only look through a portion of this psalm for time's sake. Uh, verses 1 through 15, and then uh, we'll conclude too with verse 23. We're going to skip one of the stanzas. We'll take these in order, verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 13, and then close on verses 14, 15, and 23. And just to set the stage, this is a, a, this is a graphic psalm that when we read, especially the opening verses of this, it should bring rich imagery to our mind. If you think of God coming into the covenant with Israel. Do you remember God shows up in fire and storm on a mountain as he institutes the covenant with Israel? 
We got a little bit of that imagery here for a very different reason. Because God comes as judge and he's going to indict Israel for a lack of covenant faithfulness. And he shows up in this powerful imagery and the image really is not Sinai and the reception of the covenant, but it's a courtroom. And God's calling the heavens and the earth to bear witness to the faithlessness of his covenant people. And that faithlessness is signally seen in their lack of thankfulness. So that's where we're going. Psalm 50 verses 1 through 6 to start off. The mighty one, God, the Lord, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. That may be a sarcasm. My faithful ones have not been faithful. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. So when this opens and God is being introduced, it's this glorious trinity of names. So God, the mighty one, God, the Lord, would be Elohim, El, Yahweh. God introduces himself with three names to raise the ante. This is God Almighty, the glorious one. If you look at verse 2, it says, Out of Zion God shines forth. You remember Zion is the hill on which the city of Jerusalem is built. And so this, the term Zion and Jerusalem often became interchangeable. And at this time, King David had brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And you remember God's, if we can even say it this way, God's physical manifestation on earth was as a cloud, uh, a, a shimmery cloud of glory that resided above the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. And so here the thought is, the, the Ark is in Jerusalem, it's in Zion. And remember, only the high priest could go in there once a year and in, in that sense, as he splattered blood on the ark, see God's glory. This comes up later in Ezekiel when Ezekiel sees God's glory leaving the temple and leaving the city. But the thought here is that God's glory is so transcendent that though he's limited in the sense that his presence is seen in the tabernacle above the ark, that it can't be contained there that his glory in the midst of the capital and the place that he calls home, it's shining out from there. It's shining out in the, among the very people that are not giving him his due. So he's, he's addressed by this glorious threefold Trinitarian introduction as God, and then his glory is so great it cannot be contained. It's shining out from his presence in the tabernacle. God is so great, and that's the way he wants to be introduced because that's the point to be made to his covenant people. Like Yahweh appearing at Sinai, there's this devouring fire, there's storm and tempest. Think also of Yahweh's appearance to Job. You remember as you read through the book of Job, God starts in heaven in these conversations, but after a while, Job begins indicting God. And so when God shows up to indict Job, he shows up in this visage of power and glory, a whirlwind. And so here's little Job standing before this great whirlwind to get a sense of 
God's great and I'm not. Well, that's the same thing God's doing here. Like a call to a court of law, God calls all creation to come and be witnesses to his charges against his covenant people. So very intentionally, this is all set up on the front end to introduce God in a very specific way. It's fair to ask, why does the Lord take so much care to describe himself in these ways? And it's because he wants Israel to understand who it is they're offending with the triteness of their worship and the wickedness of their sin. And this is the point. The magnitude of their offenses can only be gauged by the greatness of the one they're offending. The magnitude of their failures isn't measured by them. It's measured by God. The depth of their miscalculation and the breadth of their sin can't be rightly understood unless it's seen in the light of who God is. It's only in the knowledge of the greatness, the holiness, and the perfection of God that we're able to see sin as it is. That's true today. That's true today. That's not only true then. We are like, uh, morally, we are like paupers dressed in paupers rags. And I compare my pauper's rags to yours, and I say, I don't look that bad. Mine look pretty good. And that's the problem. It's only in God's presence and holiness that we're able to see our sin. And so God is demonstrating a little bit of his glory and his holiness so that they're seeing this is the God we're interacting with. He's not like us. He's distinct. He's holy. He's high and lifted up. This is the one we've been offending. This is the one we've been taking for granted. If I've seen the king in his glory and perfection, I'm able to see myself and my sin as I am. And guys, this is what you see in passages like Isaiah 6. You know, Isaiah is a prince. We call him the prince of the prophets. He, he is all that. I mean, as far as a godly man in the Old Testament, he is all that. But as soon as he sees God in his glory in Isaiah chapter 6, he falls apart. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. If you go into the book of Zechariah, later Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest in the courts of heaven. And what does, remember, he's the high priest. He's the holiest guy in Israel. He's the only guy that gets to go in to the temple and see God in his glory. And what's he look like before a holy and just and righteous God? They look at him and they say, well, he's dirty and he needs clean clothes. And he can't produce them. Lord, would you, would you dress him up appropriately? These are the holy guys in Israel, but before God, they understand he's holy and we're not. He's distinct from us. And we need to live in recognition of that and give him his due because of that. For you and I, we would say practically, it's through meditating in God's word. It's through spending time with God in prayer it's by fellowshipping with other Christians on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or Friday mornings or whenever it is we get together that we see more of God, we know God more fully as he is. That's how we grow because that's when we see our sins and our deficiencies the way God does. He raises them in his presence. It can't be otherwise. This is also why we say to grow as a Christian, your, your sensitivity to sin grows over time so that rather typically, not always, but typically, the longer I walk with Christ, the more sin I tend to see in myself. 
because my eyes are tuned, I know God more fully as he is, and because of that, I see my sin more fully as it is. That can come across as a discouragement, but in fact, it means I'm gaining more and more of God's estimation of things. So, so God calls heaven and earth to be the witness. He's the judge, and he's also the prosecuting attorney, and he's going to bring his charges in verses 7 through 15. He does it sort of in a backhanded way. Verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. He's witness for the prosecution here. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. You can't give me anything that I don't already own. If I were hungry and I'm not, I would not tell you for the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat, or we could say, do I really eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Do you really think it's significant to me that the animals are offered on the altar as if I need them? So God's case against his people is surprising, and at first blush, it does not appear significant. And historically, we would say, this is not as bad as Israel got by any stretch. He's not making charges of gross idolatry. Now, he does before this time frame, and he does later, afterwards. He's not accusing them of murder or witchcraft. Think of King Saul. In fact, the charges, such as they are, are by way of exclusion. He begins by pointing out the reasons he's not accusing them. It's not their sacrifices, and it's not that they aren't showing up at the tabernacle with the required offerings. He says that's not what's going on. If you read later, so this is about 1,000 B.C. If you go forward 600 years to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, God does indict them there for offering deficient sacrifices specifically. And there he says, in contrast to what the law, the covenant required, there he says you're bringing blind animals, lame animals, deficient animals, animals you wouldn't give for your governor, you're offering on the altar to me like I'm some backwater, tin pot, potentate, and whatever you give me, I'm okay with. There it's about the quality of the sacrifices reflecting the littleness that they held God in regard. Here it's different. In Asaph's day in Psalm 50, God's charges are against his people related to a formalism in their religious observance without humble hearts connected to him in thanksgiving and praise. So this would be like, um, <clears throat> maybe this is you, maybe this has been me or, or you or some of us now or in the past. It would be like this. I went to church Sunday morning. I wrote a check. I gave, I gave God a check. God should be happy. I, I, I went through the, the hoops. I jumped through the hoops. You know, I did my little thing. God got his little piece of me, whatever that looked like, and he should be happy. Because I did that little thing that means he's okay and I'm okay. We would say it, it was religion. They were going through the motions. 
the, the deal isn't that they didn't go to tabernacle. It isn't that they didn't write the check. It's that their heart wasn't in it. They weren't really thankful, and they weren't in fear and awe of God, and they should have been, and that's the deal. They were treating him like he was a small, insignificant entity instead of the God who can call heaven and earth to bear witness, instead of the one who shows up in fire and storm and tempest, that they've forgotten who he is. They've forgotten what he's like, and they've forgotten what he's required. In Israel's good times, their religion had become ritual and form. They paid God his due, but their hearts weren't engaged. It was the appearance of worship without truth and faithfulness. You know, if I'm in a marriage in which there's an unhappy truce between me and my spouse, we go through the motions, we sit down at the same table, we share the same name and the same house, but really we live our lives separately from each other, there's an appearance of a thing without the reality. And that's the thought here. Remember, Israel is God's covenant people. He's made a very specific, it's singular, it's unique in all the world. You're my people, I'm your God. And this is what our relationship looks like. That's the law. So they're going through a form of rich, uh, ritual and religion, but their heart's not in it. And God says, I have no use for this. And that's why they're being indicted. He describes himself as Elohim, a God in the plural, El, God in the singular, you know, Yahweh, the eternal I am, in their eyes has been rendered down to a charity case by his own people. It's like, God, we've given you that little thing you needed, and so you'll be happy and we're okay. The greatness of their insult to God was in making him little and needy. It's the sacrifices. That's what they're doing, and God should be happy. Their deficient view of Yahweh rendered him an impotent God, not worthy of thanks and not capable of deliverance. We'll see that in just a minute. Uh, think of God in a box. You know, for them, God's in that little box up there, and that's where God lives, and God's okay up in his little box, and if we need him, we might go and, and see him. We might do this or that, but God's in a box, and we gave him his little thing, and like feeding your parakeet at home, perhaps. Uh, he was visited occasionally and placated as necessary, but their worship was deficient because their view of God was deficient. So, God says, it's not for this, it's not for that that I'm indicting you, it's for thanklessness, it's for a heartless formalism. So what should worship and praise to God look like? And I don't think this was what Israel thought would come out. This is verses 14 and 15. What was God after? Offer to God, now he doesn't say the animals, you don't even have to go to the tabernacle for this. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you and you'll glorify me. The sacrifice God was looking for was one of thanksgiving. And that just means their heart is right before God. They're in tune with God relationally. It was just a heart of thanksgiving. They were thankless. I think it was Douglas Wilson who said, uh, a lack of gratitude expressed is ingratitude. A lack of thankfulness expressed is thanklessness. 
And that was their relationship and their heart towards God who provided them everything they had. So God was looking for thanksgiving, praise to God for who he is and how he interacts and delivers. And that's the same kind of praise, by the way, in thanksgiving and petition that you see in the history of this nation. We don't see it typically today, but that is the heritage of the nation. They were still saying in the inception of the nation and going forward, that's what God deserves and that's what we should give. Heartfelt thanks and praise and petition we'll talk about in just a minute. Verse 14 says, perform your vows. You remember in Israel, it would not be uncommon to say, <clears throat> and appropriately so, God didn't censure them for this. Lord, if you'll do such and such, I will give thanks by way of what, whatever. So Lord, if you'll give me abundance of crops this year, let's just say as an example, I'll give you 40% of the crops this year. Well, the thought is, if you tritely or glibly say, you know, God, would you do something? And if you do, this, is, this, is, this will be my thanksgiving, and you don't do it, that's not okay. In fact, keeping vows in the Old Testament was a big deal. That's part of the law as well, doing what you said you'd do. So God says, when you vow, treat me and treat my name as significant. If you made a pledge or a vow and I did my part, keep your end up. He doesn't need anything they're giving, but it's the thankfulness that they should have, that they should be expressing that they weren't. We'll use God's name tritely, and we might do that. God bless you. Is that what we mean? If we, when we pray to God, do we pray tritely or glibly and then forget him and forget that, especially when he answers prayer? Have you guys found that not infrequently, if we're in trouble, we ask a bunch of people to pray for us? And then, and I'm careful about God answers prayer in many different ways. But let's say we ask God and we ask other people to pray for us, so-and-so, let's just say to get better, to be healed physically. And we spread word far and wide because the need is, is in the moment. And let's say that the person is healed and they get better. What do we do? You know what it usually is? It's crickets. The plea went out, please pray, and then there's no follow-up of, and this is what happened, we should give God thanks. It doesn't happen routinely. It's a disappointment. If we ask people to pray, it's good to follow up and say, this is what God did, or this is what God didn't do, or this is the current status of things. But that's an appropriate thing to give God thanks because we prayed, they, they vowed, and God answered, and then they just... Didn't do a thing. They just forgot about it. Verse 15 says, Call on me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you and you'll glorify me. This verse 15 was the reason I always loved Psalm 15. There's this uh, Psalm 50, verse 15. So they haven't been giving thanks. They haven't been in the moment with God. And yet this is what God says. When trouble shows up at your doorstep, you pray. You come to me in prayer, and I'll take care of it. And when I've taken care of it, and remember, there were covenant promises. Uh, God says to them, you do these things, I'll do those things. God says, we're in right relationship. Trouble shows up on your doorstep. You tell me about it. I'll take care of it. And after I do, you'll glorify me. How do they glorify him? Because they give him thanks. I love this. 
Because God says you're needy and I'm not. And when trouble shows up at your door, I can handle it and you can't. So you come to me. They weren't even petitioning God routinely for their needs because they didn't feel the need for it. God says, no, when trouble shows up, you bring the trouble to me because I'm adequate and I'll intervene for you. And guys, you know, often, often in life, those troubles that rise in us, around us, they're not mistakes and God may not just take them away because they may be those prods that God's getting our attention or getting us where he wants us. And they're a good thing. They're a useful thing in God's hands. We may still pray, God, please take this away. And he may or he may not. He'll still use it. He's sovereign and he's using all things in the lives of his children. So he says, call on me. That honors God. He's omnipotent. There's nothing he can't do. So when we're in trouble and in need, he told his people, you come to me. I'll take care of that. And what you'll do is you'll turn around and you'll give me thanks. That glorifies me. In times of plenty, hearts often wander. We don't feel the need for God. It's in times of need that our trials and desperation tend to drive us to the one who's able to intervene on our behalf. God's call is to give him thanks in times of plenty, thanks for the plenty, and acknowledgement that every good thing has come from his hand. We need to remember that. Even Guys, if we're really smart and we're really hardworking, and we create wealth and bounty and abundance, at the end of the day we say, God, you gave the ability. God, you gave the energy. God, you gave the opportunity. God, it's, at the end of the day, it's all about you. Thank you. God's call is to call on him in our trials because that cry for help acknowledges God is God and we're not, and Christ's love is on us and for us. And whatever God's answer to our prayer looks like, he is worthy of our petitions and our praise. And this is where we want to be careful. <clears throat> Christians are promised persecution. Christians are promised trouble in this world. So if we pray that God resolves something, health, wealth, relationship, whatever, and he doesn't, that's his prerogative. So we don't say we'll praise God only when the skies are blue and the lights are green. No, God, every day, every breath, everything you've given me, even a troubled life, I exist, I know you. That's worth thanking God for any day and every day, no matter what his answer to our prayers looks like. We're skipping the, the passage on the wicked. I want to get down for time's sake to verse 23. This is the conclusion. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, not an animal. This Guys, this isn't even costly, is it? You know, if you offered a bull, a bull was valuable. If you offered a sheep or a goat, that was valuable. There was real wealth in that. And here God says, you know what I'm happy with? A sacrifice of thanksgiving, of, of your heart tuned to mine and where you recognize who I am and that you're mine by my grace, and that you enjoy life and breath by my doing, and you acknowledge that, and you say thanks. God's like, that's what I'm after, is your heart, not your stuff, but your heart. Thanks can only be given from a humble heart in humility. That's a challenge. Thanks indicates we know that it's God who has blessed us, 
thanks to God, acknowledges that he alone is ultimate provider and savior. That kind of humility and thanksgiving is ordering our way right before God, God who is salvation. We can, and I think on the weekend, any day really, whether we're thinking of the heritage we have as those in the United States with the norm, the historic norm, that was turning to God in confession of sin, giving thanks and petitioning, that's a great heritage to look back on. Or if we're looking back on Israel in Psalm 50, it's the same thing. It's that call to have a right heart towards God, to acknowledge that in humility and to give him thanks. If we are slow to give God thanks and praise, guys, or if our hearts feel dull, there's a few things we can do along that line. The first one, and your study sheet has all these on the back, the first one is confess sin. If I have known sin, I'm at odds with God, and I know it. And I'm not free to come and just give thanksgiving. My heart isn't right before God. So confess sin. If there's something that's holding us back, if sin is an issue, confess that thing to God. It's not worth holding on to anyway. It's destruction. It's, it's an abrogation of life. It's not the apprehension of life. Let's get rid of that. Confess that. Another thing we can do is, besides the things we've already talked about, meditate in his word, pray, be in the fellowship of the saints, is do some of the things that give us a perspective. So guys, I was out this morning at uh, maybe 4, 4.30. It was dark and it was a clear sky. And you know what? When I stand outside and look at the stars and the sky, I'm reminded how big God is and how little I am. And my mind goes to eternity all the time. It's like, God, one day my spirit's going to leave this body and I'm going up there, out there someplace. And you're big and I'm not. And there's a mystery in that and there's a certain trepidation in that, but it also is a great reminder. God, you're bigger than what I can see. You're big and I'm not. And that's a good thing to know. How about this on Thanksgiving weekend? I hope you have leftovers. We have leftovers, and, and I'm good with leftovers. And so when I take a bite of some of that Thanksgiving leftovers, and, you know, uh, gravy, some fat, and maybe some starch, and maybe some sweet, you think of all the flavors you get. What a great reminder. You know, we could, we could subsist. We could get nutrition, and it wouldn't have to taste good. Why did God do that? Why does food taste good? Because he delights in pleasure. Because that's what he's like. He's good. We don't have to have taste buds that make things taste delicious. Thank God. Thank God, right? Not only that it's here and on our plate in front of us, but thank God that he not only gives us food, he deigned to make it taste good so that we sit down, don't we, Keith? And we say, that was so good. That's my amen corner on the cooking and the smoking. Amen. <clears throat> that's God's goodness. That's, God good, that's God's goodness. There's a million ways we can refresh in our mind the reasons why we should be thankful to God, of what a, a capable God, what a glorious God, what a gracious God we live under and we serve. The biggest one is this, of course. Try to fathom, even with dull hearts and minds, the goodness of God in crushing Jesus. The goodness of God in crushing Jesus in heaping shame on his beloved only son. 
in order to redeem hot-blooded rebels, cold-hearted lovers, and lukewarm friends back to himself. Consider that. Nothing but goodness, nothing but grace, nothing we deserve. That's worth thanking God for. We'll never, we'll never get beyond thanking God for salvation. I mean, if you don't have anything on the earth and you have Christ, you have everything. Nothing else matters. If you have everything on the earth, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? You got nothing. You could have the wealth of the world and you got nothing, nothing worth having ultimately. Christ is all. When life looms larger than our ability to cope, we call out to God in Christ who is salvation. Christ is our salvation, not only ultimately, but in the moment. Whatever God wants to deliver us from, Christ is the means. And remember, I love Pastor Rinkhart. He did exactly that. Guy's in the midst of loss. Now, we're in a challenging season of life in this nation, are we not? Still are. Still are. And it's... I don't, I don't see any end on the horizon. We're in a challenging time. But you know, I don't think our time is any more challenging than his. That last stanza in his hymn, All praise and thanks to God the Father now be given, the Son and Him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God, whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. That's an example of thankfulness and gratefulness in the midst of loss. You think of Job again. God gave, and God took. What should I do? Bless God, thank God, just like Rinkhart did. We have much to be thankful for. Salvation is the big one. Salvation is the big one. Would you rise? I want to close by reading from Psalm 105, verses 1 through 3. By the way, if you're reading Psalm 50 or even Psalm 105 later, Psalm 107 is an example of giving God thanks through one different kind of experience after another. Let's read together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice.